listening to the Dumb Will Speak, a podcast in which we seek to honor the truth of God as revealed in His Word. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Dumb Will Speak, and I'm Roy. Today I'm flying solo. This is the first official episode, uh, full-length episode of the Dumb Will Speak that will be done just by one of the hosts. Uh, there's reasons for it today. Uh, Chalen asked me yesterday if I would continue to record today, despite the fact he would not be able to be here. Um, simple fact is, you know, and keep him in your prayers, he's having some eye surgery done over some issues he's been having, and so they're doing LASIK procedure today. And since I have the day off and do have to work on the weekend, so we will not be able to record this weekend, today was our only window of opportunity, and we're already... Three weeks since the last episode, and we don't like to go that long. So, to try to help maintain some semblance of a regular schedule, we decided to go ahead and record. He told me to go ahead and do what we were planning anyway. Our initial goal was to record two episodes today, and the first was going to be a not very lengthy episode on Bible translations, the third and final installment in that series, to get that cleared out of our to-do list. And then we were going to record just another potpourri episode, because there are so many things going on in the world throughout the month of May and June that we have not covered, and um, more timely issues. And I just think that these more societal and, you know, creep into the church and bother us. Uh, they bother us a little bit in our in our conscience, and our soul. Uh, we'll, we'll discuss those together. So I'll keep any social commentary or any political comments or anything like that to a bare minimum today. I don't really want to do that anyway. It's not my thing. It is my thing if I were having just a political talk show. That's, that's not what we do here. So, um, we are going to cover Bible translations, the third installment in that. And I made some notes from the last episode because I, <laughs> when I listened back to the episode a few weeks after we had, uh, posted it, I finally got around to listening to it and I discovered some things and I was like, Oh, I'm not sure I made that very clear. So I want to cover those today. I called, <laughs> I said that there had not been any new uh, TR translations. That's the Latin term textus receptus. Uh, it's, this, it's the family of, of uh, textual manuscripts that led to the King James Version, amongst others. And I said there really hadn't been one since uh, 1982's uh, New King James. That's not true. There have been a few others. And, of course, there had been others in that family that I just didn't mention because a lot of them were done by a singular translator, and I don't really go into that. You have the Darby Bible. Um, Darby is one of the uh, founding fathers of dispensational uh, theology and dispensational millennialism, premillennialism. Um, so he was a big influence on Cyrus Schofield, the Schofield Reference Bible, that sort of thing. Uh, guys like Arno Gabelin, to some degree Chuck Missler and others, a more recent uh, teacher who was sort of influenced by him. The Darby Bible. Um, there were other. Uh, Young, Young did a translation, and there was the Young's translation. All these Bibles are still available online. You can get them free online. Um, one great way to do it is just get Bible Hub. If you get Bible Hub or you get uh, Uversion, I should say, Uversion app, which we mentioned in the last, we gave you some apps in our last episode, and that was that's where you can find those Bibles. They're still there. But there is one. It's called MEV, Modern English Version. The Modern English Version is based on the TR. It's based on the these this traditional text, and... They do it. Uh, I, there's not a whole lot of availability of that Bible. It's not been out long, just a few years. But yes, there has been other TR um, Bibles. Another one was that I, I think I said dynamic equivalence for the Holman. And by subsequent 
derision from there, derivation, I'm sorry, from that has been the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, but pu- published by Holman Bible. And they, um, they, they call their, their style of translation an optimal equivalence, not dynamic. Sorry about that. Dynamic equivalence would be NIV, it would be the NLT, etc. But um, optimal equivalence is something that they say is a balance between formal and dynamic. Truthfully, every translation has some formal and some dynamic. It just does. So you're splitting hairs on that. But since I've made the mistake of saying that, I just wanted to correct that. I wanted to also say that my little definition of um, variance was kind of silly. The comic book cover variance issue, that's not even really a good analogy if you want to know the truth. After I listened to that, I cringed a little. I was like, wow, comic geek uh, tendencies were showing up. Uh, But beyond that, I'm not saying I'll never use a comic book reference again. I might. I use movie references. I use whatever. But what I'm saying is, I apologize for that particular thing on variants because that wasn't a good example. Those type of variants, the variant covers means that maybe one in ten issues ordered by a from the distributor will be a different cover. That's not what I'm saying about variance in the text. Variance in the text is that although this is found in some texts, it's not in others, a variant is where you have a variant reading. You have a reading that doesn't match other texts, and it shows up for various reasons. Scribal error, uh, someone sees a side margin note and thinks it's part of the text or isn't sure, so they stick it in there anyway. And that can explain why the traditional text, the Byzantine text, is so more expansive than the what is called Alexandrian or Western text. Um, so, anyway, there was that. I wanted to define eclectic text better. Um, so today, when we talk about text, textual issues, I am going to define what the eclectic text is, all right? I will define the majority in Byzantine text, what that really is, and I'm, you know, I'm going to go with that. So today, we're going to start in the early 50s with, and catch us up through the second half of the 20th century, and into today, the, the first quarter of the 21st century, we're going to discuss modern Bibles, modern Bible translations. Our long, we have had at this point, I think over two hours worth of stuff in which we talked about text, we talked about Bible translations, we talked a little bit about King James onlyism, we've talked about a little bit of everything, including recommendations on Bible apps and the, the, the translations that we both individually prefer and that sort of thing. But now that all that's out of the background and you're, you're finally caught up to the mid-20th century, let's just get into it and talk about the RSV. The RSV is one of those that uh, really is the beginning of sort of uh, fundamentalist reaction to the modern Bibles because the RSV made some choices that offended a lot of people. In fact, if you've ever read their preface... From the translators, the notes from the translators to the reader, you'll find that they are very dismissive of trying to stick to the King James and saying that the King James is outdated, etc., etc., is unclear in some of its translation, has faulty translations, and has uh, language that is just archaic and outdated, and they wanted to move forward. Now, if you've ever tried to read the RSV, you'll find that it's still a bit stilted, it's still a bit traditional in its, in its wording, but it's moving towards a, a simpler, more linear modern translation. They did use the um, a more of a what we now call the modern text, which is an ironic uh, misnomer. It's misnamed, in other words. It's an oxymoron to call it the modern text because, in truth, the reason that those texts are used is because they're actually more ancient. There's not as many of them, and they're usually incomplete. But the reason we try to rely on those more is because they actually happen to be dated earlier 
they're from an earlier line of manuscript. So they're closer to the first century text. At least we, we think they are. So the RSV uh, drew a lot of ire from people uh, in a more strongly conservative right-wing bent. And Christianity uh, is, for the, for the, again, for the translators themselves, seemingly to being dismissive of the King James in their, in their introduction and for their various translational things, including the idea of, of translating the Hebrew word Alma, where it says a virgin shall conceive, it says a young maid or a young maiden, I forget how it's, a young woman, will, will conceive, because they're taking a very literal uh, rendition of the, of the Hebrew text, and Alma does mean a young maid. Um, interestingly enough, without trying to be vulgar here, the term often used for a virgin was a maiden, and the, the, the term for virginity itself was maidenhead, the maidenhead of the womb, okay? I'm not trying to be vulgar, folks. I'm just saying that is where we get it in English language. That's where we get that term, okay? So if you say a young maid or a young maiden will conceive, you could actually say you're still talking about a virgin, but they went with that more literal translation, um, noting, though, that in the New Testament, when it is being talked about in the Gospels, they, they do quote and say, Behold, a virgin shall conceive. They get that from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was begun around the 2nd century, I think 2nd, 3rd century B.C., middle of the 3rd century B.C., around some 200, 250 years before Christ's birth. That translation, which would have been the translation of the early church and the early church writers, was in the vernacular, it was in the Greek, the common language, business language, and social language of the Roman Empire. Many Jews spoke or read or wrote Greek, and they wanted it in that common language. Uh, Hebrew was now a formal old religious language and not really the language in which they spoke, the vernacular. The Septuagint, uh, the translation of the 70, it, that's why it gets its name, traditional thing about 70 translators. We won't go into all that. But anyway, uh, the Septuagint does translate it as a virgin. So it's probably the correct translation and it's what we think of when we think of it, and we get that from our traditional text, from the King James, from the Byzantine, all these other things. Obviously, the King James and other translations have generally said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Okay. But they went with this um, very general view of the term Alma in Greek, I mean in Hebrew, and from that point, they ticked off a lot of people, to be, to be blunt. That's just what they did. They felt like they could linguistically justify the translation, and other translations have done it since then. However, that's one of the biggest quandaries people had, was the, the opening line there in the translation in which they sort of uh, <laughs> diss on the King James, and then secondarily, the various translation issues that they have with it. One of the most important for them was the idea of the virgin shall conceive. Um, there were others, but that's just one I'm pulling off the top of my head. So... They're, they're, the RSV is back in the limelight today, and I'll tell you why. There is a um, documentary, I think it came out this month, or was supposed to come out this month, for Pride Month here in, uh, here in the U.S., and of course there's no greater uh, indictment of the whole movement than to call it Pride, because obviously it's about Pride, and read Romans 1. But um, at any rate, for what we used to call Gay Pride is now Pride, Pride Month, because you have to could include all the little... Um, alliterations now, LGBTQA+, etc. The um, pride groups are trying to say that the statement in 1 Corinthians 
and elsewhere about homosexuality, that there's a translation issue that occurred when Metzger and some of the... Bruce Metzger, Bruce M. Metzger, he was a PhD, he was a textual guy, wrote very few things in the way of like theology and or commentary, but he was brilliant on the... He did do, he did do some, don't get me wrong, but he was brilliant on the languages, and especially on the Greek, and he is sort of um, the guy for the Greek text, and he was one of the head editors and translators of the Revised Standard Version, the RSV. And what they're saying is, in the late 40s, when these guys were doing this translation, they translated a Greek term, arsenokoites, and they invented out of whole cloth the term homosexual. Well, they didn't invent the term. The term had come out already, <laughs> come out, had already been invented in the 20th century, but but the point is that they're saying that they wrote into the Bible the term homosexual in the RSV translation, to which James White and others have given a very good refutation of that. Uh, Grudem and a couple of the other members of the English Standard Version translation have explained their method of translating and why they went with what they did. Um, I'm not going to look that up. That's something that, honestly, I think Chalen wants us to get into. We may talk about that in the next episode, but I'm just going to let you know the RSV is actually back in the limelight again, but now it's liberals hating on the translation and treating it as ultra-conservative. Oddly enough, the ultra-conservatives hated the RSV, so there you go, and considered it a liberal Bible translation. My, how times can change, right? Now, people's points of view can change given on what year you're living in. So I just thought that was interesting. So the RSV, um, which I was trying to see if I have one on my shelf. I can't find it. If I do... You hear squeaks, that's my chairs. I twist and turn looking on my shelves. I don't see it. Um, I don't, maybe I don't have it. I, I don't know. I was, I was convinced that I had an RSV, but... Well, okay, regardless. Uh, it's, not, it's, it's not important that I pull it down and read it exactly as it's worded. Like I said, we'll get that. And it can be found online anyway. I could, I could go online on my phone or tablet or computer and pull that up if I needed to. But we may do that for the next episode, as I said. So the RSV, or Revised Standard Version, it's uh, published in 1952 by the Division of Christian Education from the National Council of Churches of Christ in the USA. Now, that is the National Council of Churches, okay? Again, another organization which conservatives have always been very liberal of, because uh, very, very wary of, because they consider it very liberal. They consider it very much into the sort of, hmm, so today, I guess you would think of it as social gospel uh, etc. Um, more liberal, maybe more liberal than some groups. Uh, sure, I, I would, I would give you that. And not all organizations want to be involved. Not all congregations would choose to be involved with the National Council of Churches or the World Council of Churches for that very, for those very reasons. That's not going to cause me to dismiss this translation. Now, why did they t- do the translation? Uh, they kind of did it based on the fact of the American Standard Version needing an update. Now, that's important because a lot of these things are all falling in line. If you'll recall from the last time, I said the American Standard came from the English Revised Version from England. It was the Americanized standard of that. It was the American Standard, 1901. So in 1952, they're thinking, well, the ASV needs to be updated. And so they do a completely new revision of it, using new Greek text, by the way, compared to what they'd used before. And they come up with this, and that kind of becomes the standard mainline Protestant ecumenical type um, edition. There were, it was given Catholic acceptance in the mid-60s, so there's a Catholic version of the RSV that included the Apocrypha, etc. 
And so that was Catholic bishops approved um, from the RSV. And this is another reason why you have people say, well, this was just a generalized liberal version. Others called it the scholarly Bible. Okay, and you can still buy a revised standard if you want to pay good money. It's, it's going to be expensive to get, but you can still get it in a leather-bound edition. I know that you can get it through ChristianBook.com for sure. Um, so that's 1952 when this comes out, okay? Now, since then, you have others that, that decide, well, we want something a little more conservative in its leaning. So you had some mainline evangelicals in America who were like, okay, wait a minute. We're not big on this RSV thing, Okay. But what the King James is getting out of date, and it's hard to witness to people, this will be the thing that sows the seeds for what we would later call the New International Version. But not to dismiss what occurs in the meantime. Over at the Lockman Foundation, a group that was founded to work on Bible translations from the latest textuals, textual editions, etc., etc., they decided that we're going to work on some Bibles and going to get a new translation. And so what they did was they got permission to take the ASV and revise it. And they began work in the 60s on the New American Standard Bible, or NASB, or NASV, New American Standard Version, but it's generally called NASB, New American Standard Bible. This goes through several stages of translation. The New Testament comes out, then the Old Testament. They always begin. They usually begin with a book. They usually begin with the Gospel of John, so that's how it starts. And then they go with the rest of the New Testament and there'll be Psalms and Proverbs, and they'll print a New Testament with the Psalms and Proverbs, and then they'll print the full Bible at a given time, usually a period of a few years apart. And so by what you have is a standardized version somewhere between 1973 and then again in 1977. You have the first of the revisions, and it stays put. The New American Standard Bible stays put from 1977 until 1995. Now, today on our podcast, whenever we read from the Bible, and we said this in our intro, what we would be reading from in general, unless we tell you otherwise, is the New American Standard Bible. We use the 1995 update. Chael and I both possess the 1995 update. It was our first New American Standard Bible that we both owned. It's the one we like. It's generally the one I read from, as a rule. Now, when I go to Bible Hub, and I'm reading from Bible Hub off my phone, I would have to go into the settings and change it back to 95 because it doesn't come naturally with the 95 anymore. An update occurred just this past year, 2020, an update occurred that they began work on in like late 18, early 2019 and announced it would be ready by 2020. It barely made it into 2020. It was it was early fall before it, it reached September, October, before it really reached the shelves. But that 2020 update is now the edition you get and it's the edition you're going to get on your apps and such. But you can still find the 77s and the, and, the, and the 95s. Those are the two other versions, and they're the most popular. There's probably more 95 out there than any. And this became the Bible of choice for a lot of seminaries and a lot of scholarly people. But you had a backlash to that. They thought it was too literal in some cases, that it didn't give enough nuance. You didn't get enough of the of the of the intention, uh, what, what would be modernizing the language so that you get the whole feel of the intention of the, of, the, of the wording rather than a strict construction of the wording, okay? And you'll sometimes hear this called Yoda speak in modern, <laughs> in modern vernacular because it's based on Star Wars, the character Yoda, the Jedi master who speaks almost backwards. Well, think about it when you've read the Bible from the King James growing up or, or whatever Bible you've used growing up. You'll sometimes find that in the Bible that there's these weird wordings the English language in order to translate from the Greek, you're going to get this sort of backward speech sometimes in which in which adjective and noun, verb and adverb order seem to be a little twisted. Well, 
this is a criticism aimed against another modern translation, but I'll get to that in a minute. But the New American Standard often reads that way. Well, there's a reason for that. And in a past episode, I don't remember which one it was. It's been a while. I mentioned that if you're reading from the New American Standard, you'll sometimes think, I'm barely reading English at times in some verses, just some harder passages from the Old Testament. And there's a few in the New Testament as well, in which you're going to get this sort of stilted language. It comes from the fact that they're hewing very close to the original languages. And I mean, really close. Uh, I have a couple of interlinears, and I can tell you when you're reading from an interlinear how stilted that language is, and you see the word order and, and how you have the articles in the Greek, the chi and others that are just sort of out there in the word, in, in a sentence sometimes, and you're like, well, which one, what part is this, is this, like, what is this actually identifying? They have to make choices in order to make it make sense in English, and when they do that, sometimes, it can, depending on how literal they want to be, they can make it kind of stiff and wooden. And that's been a big Negative for some scholars, uh, guys like a guy that I respect, I disagree with him on this, but a guy that I respect, Daniel B. Wallace, he, he'll, he'll just flat out say, I don't like the New American Standard, and I wish people would get away from the New American Standard. I'd rather you read the English Standard Version, which I'll get to in a few minutes, rather than you read the New American Standard. He says if you're too literal, you totally miss the nuances of the languages and what they were saying at that time to people and how that would now translate today. For instance, if you're very strict on the wording, and sometimes you'll find that in the King James, or you'll find the King James, when it does try to translate into the modern vernacular, it's the modern vernacular of the <laughs> late 16th, early 17th century. So you're still using anachronistic terminology to try to define something in which poetic language like Hebrew would be trying to tell you things that are very, I don't know, they seem almost cosmic. They're cosmically strange in some way. They don't match the way we speak today. Okay, but how do you say things like, all right, I'll use a New Testament example. How do you say it was, a, it was 10 denarii? Okay, a denarii was a level of money that was equivalent to one full day's wage of a laborer. But what does that mean? So do we translate that as 10 coins, 10 days wages, 10 units of money? $10? How do you say it? Because what was the equivalent to today? Well, we don't, I, I don't think we can actually 100% know what that was. But in many cases, you'll just say, the King James and other translations as well, will just say it was a denarii. And just leave it at that. And then put a footnote that says a day's wage. That's all you really need to know. But some would say, no, let's try to make it, you know, what it would be today. So, for instance, an Old Testament example. Genesis. Noah building the ark. What kind of wood was he using? What was pitch? What was, um, so what was gopher wood? What was pitch? What is um, a cubit? What's the measuring of a cubit? Okay, it can be anywhere from 17 to 19 inches is what people think it was. But what cubit? And there was the royal cubit of Egypt that was different than the other uh, people were using in the Middle East at that time. So, of course, again, you have these discrepancies. Do you just leave it at cubit and then say it was a unit of measurement similar to the length of a man of a grown man's forearm because that's what it was or do you or do you say do you break it down into what people think might have been the overall standard in the English measurement of 17 inches and then extrapolate that that if it was 40 cubit it's 17 times 40 and you get that amount and I'm not a math genius so I'm not able to do that sitting here talking off the top of my head like this I didn't write this down none of this is from notes so what do you do well, I just say, 
write down 40 cubits and put below in a footnote that it's a unit of measurement, believed to be the length of an adult male's forearm and, and estimated to be between 17 and, and 19 inches. Or, if you're going to use these other measurements that are known at that time, to be, have also been called cubit anywhere from 14 to 20 inches. And just leave it at that. Let people do the math themselves if they want to know. Uh, but some would say, no, let's break it down for people and do, and do it in, in, in modern measurements and do it in feet. You know, or if it's going to be published in, in Europe, in the British version of it, let's do it in, in metrics and give it to them in, in meters, centimeters, whatever. I don't know. It's, it's your choice. I don't know. I, and I think it should be a choice. I, the translators have to make a choice, and then the readers have to make a choice. Well, do I want to go with a more literal translation, or do I want to go with this, you know, where they've actually done all the work for me? This leads to what happens. You get guys like um, Kenneth Woost, whom I have several of his books. Uh, some of them were my dad's. Some of them I inherited from an, another uh, retired pastor who gave me some of his books. Uh, brilliant scholar. He worked on what would become the Amplified Bible, also for uh, Lockman Foundation. But he was a New Testament scholar. If I'm not mistaken, he was the Greek professor that taught James White, the dividing line, his father when his father was at seminary. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I heard James White say that. So anyway, Kenneth West did his own singular translation. You can you can buy the Bible that he did. Um, it's called an expanded New Testament or expanded Bible or whatever. But this was the general background for why they came up with the Amplified Bible. Now, I don't know if you've ever looked at an Amplified Bible, but an Amplified Bible will do things like what, what I was just saying. They'll have all this sort of like built-in commentary within text itself. I think it gets a little out of hand sometimes, Having, having having read from it before. And the the difference between the Amplified, traditional Amplified that came out in the 60s, and the one that's out today, the new Amplified, it's, it's significant enough, but they're both very wordy. I mean, almost to the point that it's almost like a... I will say it's almost like a built-in study Bible. Now, there is an Amplified study Bible as well put out, but I uh, think Zondervan. But, you know, that's just one of those Bibles. If you're interested in that and you want to go way in, but you're never going to actually learn Greek, Hebrew, or anything like that, Latin or Aramaic, and most of us aren't, including myself, uh, then yeah, by all means, buy that Bible. It could, could be very interesting. So Lockman put out the Amplified Bibles, and they put out the New American Standard. Uh, but the NIV, it's the New International Version. And hold on just a second, because I will pull one off my shelf. I have the 1984 edition, which, if you looked at it, close enough and looked at Bible sales in the late 20th century, you'll find that when the King James began to be eclipsed and replaced, at least in the United States and Canada, by uh, other Bibles, it was the New International Version that was doing it. And it was generally by the time of the 1984 revision. There is a, a 1978 version. You can still find them online and other places. They don't still publish it. They actually don't really publish the 84 edition, but, but there are secondary publishers that are that are not Zondervan. Zondervan is the publisher, by the way, of the New International Version, and and um, this one was put out and originally copyrighted, like I said, in '78 by the New York International Bible Society. Okay, that's just called the International Bible Society today, I believe. Um, it's it's the Bible that has at times been called the bloodless Bible by hypercritics. Uh, particularly uh, fundamentalist Baptists and and certain other groups who are, who really get big into the King James onlyism, they're really hard on the NIV, and they call it the bloodless Bible because of one verse in Colossians where the word blood is not in there. 
in comparison to some from the traditional text, but it's not like the blood is removed. They'll also claim that the deity of Christ is is neglected, and that Christ is as 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 Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the fulfillment of all things, as the secondary of the Trinity, is treated somehow illegitimately. Okay, I don't think so. I think if you were to look closely, and they'll talk about John in other places, but I'll think if you'll look at John chapter 1, you won't really find that. Here, here, Here's how it reads. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That doesn't sound that much different than the King James to me. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born, not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Finally they said, Who are you? Give us an answer. Take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one, calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. I don't understand how there is a problem, how you can deny, say that this Bible denies the deity of Christ in any way through there. And for, for a Bible that's claimed to be removing the blood, the blood is found everywhere in the NIV. And look, I grew up in a situation where I, where I was honestly afraid to read the NIV. I thought, uh, the NIV is just a, a, a bastardized version of the, in the English language. It's not a real Bible. No, I, I really believed that growing up. Until I took the time to read the Gospel of John, comparing it side by side with the King James, and finding it not only more easily understandable in certain places, but more definitional of who Jesus is as the Son of God and as one with the Father. So, anyway, that's my rant about the NIV. I'm still not an NIV guy. It's not a perfect Bible, but what translation can be said, because it's done by men, to be perfect? None. There are no perfect translations, and that includes the King James Version. So, there we go. Um, but the New International Version, big seller, um, was revised again. In um, First, there was the NIRV, New International Reader's Version, 
brought it down to an even lower level of reading and also began to do to make changes to the use of pronouns and the masculine and feminine to use neutral terms and things like that or, or to include the masculine with the feminine the feminine with the masculine I really should say brothers and sisters instead of my finally my so like the King James might say finally my brethren Paul might say in the King James it would be and now my brothers and sisters well why the translators looked at it as this what that included was men and women and Paul always made it clear he was talking to everyone in the in the faith now was the Greek word could the Greek word would the Greek word literally be brothers or brethren the plural of brothers yes so in the new american standard they would say we're going to translate it as brothers period NIV said, well, where appropriate, when it's not referring only to masculine people, we are going to say brothers and sisters. And that caused a lot of issues with a lot of people. They want you to be very literal. And so a lot of people got away from the NIV when that translate. They wouldn't buy that version. And when that version went off the market, they incorporated the changes into the regular NIV in 2010 or 2013. I'm, I'm not sure exactly when the last major update was. But they said they're done tinkering with it for a while. They had not they had not messed with it since 84, other than the NIRV, which was a completely different translation. Very similar, but it was updated with that. They're not the only book to do that, the only Bible to do that, okay? Because there's another one, and I want to get to that. So the National Council Churches, who owns the rights to the RSV, and had owned the rights to the ASV, began to work on a update. This update was spearheaded once again, uh, was over Psalm seen by people such as Bruce Metzger. Metzger was involved in both translations. This version finally sees publication in 1989. Now, they they don't hide what they're using. They used the, what would be called the Nestle Allen, the NA26, I think, or 27. This version can be bought in which you have an interlinear, in which they give you that, I think, NA26, and a direct word-for-word interlinear, and then they give you the the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. Because I know that Chalin owns one, and I have looked at it. And uh, so I know that that's, that's a very easily obtainable one. You can find it in two different editions. One is a larger Bible, larger print, more, modern, more, more margins as well to write in. And the other one is a more condensed reader's version. They're both hardcovers, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And Chalin owns the reader's version. Slightly smaller print, thinner book, easier to carry around. Not quite the brick that the other one is. But still, still still a hardcover and still a hefty Bible. That version is sometimes rather snarkily called by some groups the Scholar's Bible. And in, in the same way that the Revised Standard had been called as well. So the New Revised is often called that. Uh, once again, it does do things like put the deuterocanonical, deuterocanonical canon in, uh, which is the the part of the Bible that was canonized by uh, at the Council of Trent in the 1500s by the Roman Catholics in response to uh, Protestantism, because one of the ways they were able to hold on to certain doctrines in opposition to Protestantism was to say, it is found, if you want to look for it close enough, within the Apocrypha, the Apocryphal books. Protestants call it the Apocrypha, uh, that version has been put in. And so that re- the New Revised Standard has that. Now, granted, I got to remind you that originally the King James had the Apocrypha. You can still buy the King James with the Apocrypha. So they used the, um, it was the Nestle Allen 27. I went on and looked that up and I was right. It was the 27, not the 
26th, not the 28th. The 28th has been out since then. Um, the New American Standard may have used the 26th. I could be that may be where I'm getting the 26th edition, but I'm not sure. But the United Bible Society also does a version which is very similar to the. It's pretty much the same as the Nestle Allen. There's just the differences in them is is how they do their textual footnotes and how many footnotes they put in. Basically, one does a lot more than the other. One is printed by one group, and one is printed by the other, but they're pretty much the same text. They are the same text. They're identical. And that's what you have them based off of. So you have the, the Greek New Testament, the UBS, United Bible Society Greek New Testament. It was the third edition, the corrected third edition, and it was an 81% corresponded to the Nestle Allen, which is called Novum Testamentum Grace, the Greek New Testament. That's how you would write it. Okay, in, in Latin is what that is. Um, it's a, a formal equivalence. The Revised Standard is like the Revised Standard, formal equivalence. There are some mild paraphrasing involved, and there is especially in the fact that there is gender-neutral language. Now, they incorporated it in 1989, long before the NIV made its update in the early 2000s and then, and then formalized the NIRV and then later into the, the current NIV. Um, so this gender-neutral language was somewhat definitely controversial amongst a lot of people and for you know i understand the reasons i really do it is somewhat considered ecumenical and generally mainline protestant i would call no one a heretic for using this bible if that's your choice it wouldn't be my choice in our the nrsv is not my choice of bible but yeah it, it's that up there of course they have the roman catholic editions of it as i stated so that one's been around since 89 i don't know that when when or if they'll ever do another update um again they went on as far back as 1989 and incorporated gender neutral language and things like that so there's not much else they not much else they could do to keep up keep step you know uh with the times um the niv chose to do that just like i said a few years ago so the nrsv comes out in 89 and throughout the the 90s you, you start to see some backlash again you have a, have a group of people that say, we want to update the RSV, but we don't want to go the route of the NRSV, the official update. But we'd like to update that and stay within the lines of the American standard, but not in the degree that the Lockman has done with the new American standard. We think there's room for another style, which is more in keeping with traditional Bible translations. By traditional, they mean old, they mean old language. The older style language, like would have been found in the RSV and the ASV, all the way back to the ERV, the King James, the Tyndall, the Bishop's Bible, all that. They want to go, they want to keep the poetry and the floweriness of the language. They want to have that poetic high language. They would call it high language, the high high church language, yet have a very good translation using the more modern Greek text. They sought permission from the National Council of Churches, and they got permission to do it through Crossway Publishers. And my understanding is there was a, a letter and some phone calls and some a, a long letter as, and as, slight, slash essay, some phone calls and other things done, mostly by a man named Wayne Grudem, was able to be the one to, uh, a Professor Wayne Grudem, Dr. Grudem, was able to talk the people into doing it. And they allowed Crossway to do it. And they said, basically, we're going to keep the flavor of the, of the old RSV and not go as the NRSV did or like the NIV has done. Now, I got to tell you something about the NIV that I forgot to say. It's a super original translation. Here's what I mean by that. The New American Standard used the text of its time, and yet it, the 26th, I believe, 
Nestle Allen. So it would be the second UBS edition. However, they were stick they were sticking they were technically considering themselves an update of the American Standard version as if the RSV had never existed. And they took the name New American Standard. They don't read anything alike. I'm just going to be honest with you. And thank God for that. The American Standard version is even more stilted than the New American Standard. So I'm glad that they 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 basically did a new new translation, but they consider it an update. It's of the family of the American Standard. So there's which means it's actually of the lineage of the King James through the through the ERV. And 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 there's why you're going to see some some word choices and stuff that they stuck with to stay traditional, but not traditional enough for some of these guys. They wanted they wanted a, a new translation from a new text, and yet they wanted to go with the main mainstream of the RSV and and pretend that the NRSV doesn't exist and make their own version. And this would be a more evangelical, more conservative, less mainline, less liberal, less ecumenical version of the RSV updated. This becomes the English Standard Version, or ESV. It's one of the most popular Bibles out there now. And it really, not only does it really sell, particularly to um, conservative evangelicals, but it's very popular amongst uh, Reformed communities and Reformed Protestant churches to the point that it's been identified with that as if it is, quote, the Calvinist Bible. I've heard it called that. Probably because of guys like Wayne Grudem being involved in the translation and probably because of guys like John Piper and uh, Albert Moeller using it as they when they preach and teach. And that's one of your main things is these guys also have books published by Crossway. So Crossway does tend to keep alive the spirit of um, sort of Protestant Reformed Baptist and traditional Protestant Reformed Protestant, original Protestant Calvinism uh, through the original Presbyterian and Dutch Reformed type movements. So, okay. So that's the English Standard Version. Now, here's my thing with the English Standard Version. I discovered it around, it came out around 2001. I discovered it around 2011, about 10 years later. I got an app for it on my original Kindle Fire, and I downloaded this Crossway Bible app, English Standard Standard Version, for free. And I was amazed by the app and the way it worked. With You could take notes in it and all that stuff. Now, since then, that particular app has changed, but also since then, that tablet quit charging. <laughs> and so all the notes that I made on that app are gone. They're there. It's frozen in its memory, but I can't access them. So that's my little diatribe about the ESV. I, I love the ESV. I, I was for a while considering that making that my main Bible. And, and I'll, I'll explain this to you. When I had left the King James as my main Bible, the new King James was still too much like the King James for me. And I, I appreciated it, but I wanted something different. And around 2007, 2008, I was introduced to the Holman Christian Standard Bible at the church I was attending. And many people there had latched on to it. I began to look at it a friend of mine had one, and I began to look at it, and it, it convinced me I want one of these. So, the, so that that Christmas, my darling wife, I opened up one of my one of my packages, and it was kind of heavy that Christmas morning. It was a Holman Christian Standard Bible with the new Schofield Study Bible notes, because I was also talking about how I missed having a Schofield Study Bible. Not that I agree with Schofield Study Bible and everything, but I like the way it's laid out, and I do like. I like to read stuff, even stuff that I don't agree with. And I couldn't think of any study Bible at that particular time that I was interested in. So I said, you know, I, I wouldn't mind having a, a Schofield study Bible. I also said I wanted a Holman. Never thought that I would get both things two in one. 
Because for one thing, I didn't know I didn't know Oxford Press even still did the Schofield or that they did it the way they do it. Well, they do. And the new international version that I was looking at a few moments ago off my shelf is in that new Schofield study system by Oxford. And it's in leather. And it's a very Lucky the Leprechaun style green, okay? I don't know how you would call it, but it's a shamrock green, I'd say, I guess you'd say. Leather. It's really bizarre. But then I have this one that has my my name embossed on the cover. My wife got it for me. And it's bigger. The Holman is bigger. It's a this is a slightly more pared down version of the of the Schofield in the NIV, the 84 NIV. But I know why. When I got to reading the Indicia, when I found this, uh, I don't know, three or four months ago, I found this Bible. It was used. It had never been used, but, but I found it in a used bookstore. And it's mint. This is an early edition. So it's not as broad, not as much margin room for notes and things like that. But this, this, this Bible like, came out in like 84, 85, when the 84 edition was brand new of the, of the NIV. So this is old. Much older than the one I've got here, which I got in the 2000s, first decade of the 2000s. And it's a bigger edition. It's, a, I think, from October 2006 or something like that. And so this is the first edition of the Holman. And it's the Schofield. And it's really nice. Um, the layout and everything. I really like this Bible. So it's also leather. And uh, I, I enjoy that Bible. So what happens, I, I decide to go with the Holman. Well, as I said... In 2011, I get the um, tablet, my first tablet ever, and I decide to download the, the, the Crossway app for the English Standard Version, and I began to compare the two of them. And I would often be sitting at my study and have a King James open <laughs> at the same passage where I was at with my Holman, and I would have my tablet turned on and, and highlighted, and I'd be in that ESV app looking at things. And I would find things in the ESV, where, and I would I remember making a text note uh, ESV omits this verse because <laughs> so I'm still working my way through the idea of is the Textus Receptus the truly received and correct text of the Greek Testament. I have since come to the conclusion I don't believe it is, but uh, at that time I was still working my way through that. And so at times I would get a little paranoid when things were missing. But the ESV does take things out or they don't keep the tradition in, let's put it that way. They'll put it in different places. You have your, the NASB, New American Standard Bible, brackets it. So if something is disputed, it's in brackets. The ESV and the NIV, they do things like putting it in margins in the, in the footnotes and things and say, explain why there's a verse number missing or whatever. So that's how that works. So the Holman is the other one besides the NIV, the New International Version, that is completely a new edition. Now, I will say this about the, the, NIV, the NIV. It's hard to find, but I believe they did do a actual... This was the text we used for our translation. Now, they used an eclectic text, and here's what I mean by an eclectic text. They used a text that had some readings that are either unique to that text itself or only part of a very minority of text holds this position. So, when textual critical text editions began coming out, you know, in the as early as the late 18th, early 19th century, but throughout the 19th and 20th century, this led to eventually the foundations like I said, the United Bible Society and then the Nestle Island edition, those are the standard texts. But there are other there are other Greek texts. There have been several throughout time. Of course, originally there was the there was the <clears throat> Westcott and Hort, and that was the one that was used for the English Revised and the, and the ASV and caused a lot of 
problems for a lot of people. A lot of conservatives didn't like it. But that gets into textual criticism, and, and it's really not the scope right now of this episode. So sticking with that, but that's an eclectic text. An eclectic text is not necessarily a part of the majority of text. In fact, it will not be of the majority of text. Now, again, there's been another Textus Receptus translation, and it's called the MEV, Modern English Version. It's from the Greek text that was used for the New King James and the King James, etc., etc. That text goes back, essentially has its foundations in the, in the Protestant Reformation era, even though not the people that really came up with it weren't really Protestants until you get to Beza. Uh, Theodore Beza, who was the assistant of um, Calvin. So, so it's kind of ironic. Most of your King James onlyists are not Calvinist. They're usually anti-Calvinist. They're not Catholic. They're generally anti-Catholic. And it's very interesting that this, they always talk about corrupted Greek texts, but the text that they go with was, was, was collated by Catholics and published by Catholics and approved by Catholic popes. So there, there's that. I have just a couple more notes I want to cover here. And that is, this one is called the Net Bible, N-E-T, New English Translation. This one's a Haas. I've talked about it in the last episode. This is also a completely new translation. doesn't come from any other line of, fa- of family of, of, of Bibles. So the NIV, the Holman, and the NET are completely unique translations. Now there is one other called the ISV, International Standard Version, but I've never seen one for sale other than I think I saw them on, on, on eBay, and they're very expensive because a very limited print run was done just so they could say they had a printed edition. It's basically an online Bible. One of the people and one of the main guys involved with it, I can't remember the man's name. I think he recently passed away in the last few years. The other guy that helped get it going and helped bankroll it was Chuck Missler. He is also deceased. I don't know that this Bible will ever receive widespread uh, dissemination. Probably won't. I don't know much about it. But it's called the International Standard Version ISV Bible. And like I say, I don't know anything about it other than two of the people that were involved in the translations and the fact that they used a particularly unique Isaiah because they had a, an Isaiah scroll, the, the, the large Isaiah scroll, the one that's complete, that's from the Qumran Caves, which is the Dead Sea Scrolls, was translated. Word-for-word translation was done into the modern language um, sometime in the late 90s, early 2000s. And the ISV, ISV people got permission to use Isaiah directly from that man, that scholar's, translation so it was, it was isaiah was the work of one man in that there's still one more that's completely unique but let me say something about the net the net involves a whole lot of people from the from the from from places like uh, dallas theological seminary and, and moody bible institute and things like that and you have guys like daniel wallace and others that i've already mentioned who were involved in the translation <clears throat> good scholars were involved in it um I learned about it through James White, and I will say that his biggest recommendation for it was if you can get the full notes edition, or if you want to download the notes to your computer because they're free, this Bible has always been free. They only published it every few years. They only had published it one other time, and it was just to get the initial print run out, kind of like they did with the ISV, but it was a larger print run. And it really wasn't meant to be a sort of brick-and-mortar store Bible. It's more of an interesting and eclectic a lot of eclectic readings in it. They talk about the textual evidence for their choices, why they chose to translate the way they do. It's a documentary on how to make a Bible. (laughs) 
when I was so excited when this thing came out, the Full Notes edition that came out in 2000, I want to say 19, maybe 2018 or 19. That I, I had to have it. I mentioned it at my Sunday school class, and a guy beat me to it. Uh, a friend of mine beat me to it. Um, listener Tim gets mentioned once again because listener Tim is actually someone who knows me in real life, and he will let me know if I don't if I fail to mention something or if, or if he questions something that I said. Love you, Tim. Hope you listen to this and enjoy it. You may not. It's because it's just me and I'm nerdy. The NET is a very unique Bible and um, called the NET Bible for obvious reasons because NET spells NET and it was free online. When they began the translation, they put it all out online. It's still free. You can quote from it for free. You can print it all out for free. You can use large quotations, as I said, for free. They, they don't want this to be like a copyright thing. But they did publish their full notes edition. And Thomas Nelson Publishers put it out. And let me and I, I know I mentioned this once before, but this thing could stop a bullet. It's 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 a fancy, it's a big Bible. It's not fancy, but I like the way it is bound. It's it's good. But I got mine really reasonably priced. It, and I got it at Christianbook.com when it first came out. Since mine was being shipped, like I said, my friend, listener Tim got it got it before I did. <laughs> it never let me live it down. I've had a lot of fines recently with Bibles. And so uh, where I've gotten them either for free or very cheap, and I, I got to say, I mean, I'm not going to tell you where I shop or how I do it, but I, I've, I've been really blessed lately to get some of these things. I've, I feel just really blessed. But I've, I've also obtained another um, interlinear. Hendrickson Publishers puts out the interlinear Bible, as it's called. It's called the interlinear because it is the only one that has a fully self-contained Hebrew, Greek, and English uh translation slash transliteration and this was by a man named jp green and he has his own had his own full english translation of the bible in addition to this um, interlinear normally you buy this in like four volumes by hendrickson it's a four volume set you have three volumes for the old testament and one volume for the new testament and you buy it as a four volume set or you can buy the new volume set the new testament volume by itself for really cheap through christianbook.com. I'm like 15 or $16 for a Greek interlinear. It is the work of one man, but pretty much is with the other one that I have, which was Mounts. Uh, I have the what's called the Zondervan Greek and English Interlinear New Testament, which has two modern English translations, the New American Standard Bible, 1995 update, and the New International Version, 1984 edition. And it's the work of two men, essentially. Um, some editing and some... Lex, lexicography, lex, lexicography work by the son, who's still alive and well and teaching, and then um, Robert Mounts, his father, um, brilliant scholar, teacher, preacher, and commentator, whose revelation, his his book, his work on Revelation for the New International Commentary on the New Testament, <laughs> published by Eardmans, is amazing, and I think should be read by everyone, and um. If you're a pre-mill guy like me, you'll still learn a lot of things from it. If you're not a premillennialist and don't like premillennial versions of, of, of books in the Bible that involve any kind of prophecy, I think you can work around it with Mounts. Mounts is one of those guys that he's very scholarly, he's very moderate, very middle of the road, yet he is a premillennialist. He is a traditional premillennialist. He's not a dispensationalist, so he's not necessarily going to talk about rapture. I don't think he's really into the rapture at all. His is just that there is a literal reign of Christ on earth coming. We're living in the days before it, therefore we are pre-millennial. I'm going to tell you a Bible that I think you should avoid. <laughs> like, I would never recommend that you go out 
and and get a collection of everything ever published by the Watchtower Association and that you would read all their materials. So avoid the New World Translation, the NWT. New World Translation is by the Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay? I own one. Um, got it recently for a song, so I went on and got it. It's weird. <laughs> now, when you talk about having corrupted textual editions, no, they just decided to not not translate the way that they would that most people would translate. They translated so it would fit their theology. So that is a truly corrupted translation. <clears throat> Let me see if I can think of anything else to cover on this. I think we've covered pretty much everything. Yes, there are other Bibles, by the way, besides the ones I've just mentioned. There's the Common English Bible. I think I own one of them as well. <laughs> there's there's a whole bunch of other Bibles that, that's really not worth talking about because it seems like everybody, every publisher in the world in the, that, that has the English language has had a translation that they publish and have a copyright on. So we, we've got an embarrassment of, of choices to make when it comes to Bibles. You make the one that you that's right that's right for you. Stick with those that are pretty much within the league of what I've just mentioned, and you're and you're not going to have much difficulty. Stay away from the New World Translation. Um, I don't personally recommend the updated NIV. I don't personally recommend the NRSV. But again, <clears throat> not going to hold it against you if you read them. That you could still learn from them. Now, I did have one more thing to say. The updates to the um, NASB from 2020. I'm not liking some of them. Some of them are a step backwards. Some of them make it read too much like, say, the NIV or the NRSV. And I don't know. I, I just, it's not a bad, it's not a bad update as far as, is it a horrible update? No, but I, I don't like it. They did go a little more um, mainstream, a little more modern, a little less literal, I think, personally what I've seen. And like I say, I only have it on my phone. I don't own a physical edition to sit down and do the side-by-side comparison all the time. But yeah, I'm not really with that one. I did leave out one that we talked about before in our personal talks before. And in the last episode, Chalen mentioned that his recommendation for new readers is the NLT. And I mentioned how my wife used to use it in, in, in trying to teach Bible. Uh, we homeschooled our kids. And so and she would have a Bible class every day with them in the mornings, a 30 to 45 minute Bible class before she began other classes of traditional education. So they would have a biblical education as well. And she used the NLT and she used the Life Application Study Bible. Now there are better study Bibles. This is not about study Bibles. We'll talk about that maybe in another episode or a small bonus episode someday. I may do that sometime. The NLT is the New Living Translation. And what it is, it's, it's based on that third category of biblical translations called a paraphrase. And the paraphrase in, in question is the Living Bible. And the Living Bible was the work of one man, and he created his own publishing house, Tyndall Publishing, which still exists and still puts out Bibles all the time. And they have the copyright on the Living Trans, the Living Bible. And like I said, it is a um, paraphrase. I believe it's a paraphrase. If I'm not mistaken, it's a paraphrase of the Revised Standard Version from 1952. And he began working on it and copywriting it in 1962 when he put out the letters of Paul and then he did the prophets and these were published as paperbacks <laughs> and I actually have a paperback from 1965 of the living prophets and for many years that was the only living part of the living bible I owned until I got this living bible recently um, but the new living translation is when he said hey you know what we I want us to do a real translation I don't want to do another 
I don't want to update my paraphrase, and I don't want it to be paraphrastic completely. I want it to be in modern simple English where a fifth grader could read and understand it. Third to fifth grader. And yet, I want it to be an actual Bible translation. So, they got out the Greek text, went to the Greek text instead of paraphrasing another translation, and made their own new translation starting in 1996. It began publishing. It's updated a time or two. I think I have the 2000, I think I have the 96 and the 2004 edition. The 2004 edition is actually what I got first, but I now have a leather-bound version of the original 96 edition and, uh, again, got it super cheap, and I enjoy that. And they used good scholars. D.A. Carson, amongst others, Longnecker, some others, were involved in this. This, was, this is a truly actual, done by scholars, translation. I know James White and some others are very dismissive of this Bible, but I, I'm not. I, I, you know, I agree to disagree. I think this is a worthwhile addition to people's Bibles. In fact, I'm one of those people that I can. I used to think when I saw this, there is an interlinear. There is. I'm sorry. There is a parallel Bible. If you don't know what a parallel Bible is, a parallel Bible is a a Bible in which often in hardcover. But you can sometimes get leather-bound versions, but it's usually a hardcover giant Bible that will have anywhere from two to four or even six translations, different translations from different publishers combined into one book so that you can go side by side on a column. And let's say it's Genesis chapter one. You're reading Genesis chapter one in the King James. Then you're reading Genesis chapter one in the NIV. Then you're reading Genesis chapter one in the Amplified Bible. Then you're reading Genesis chapter one, et cetera, et cetera, in all these different translations. Well, there's one that's, uh, forget what it's called. It might be called the People's Bible. I'm not sure. But it is it is a parallel between the King James and the New Living Translation, and I thought, holy smokes, this makes no sense whatsoever. Well, now I think it does, because now I think you can get that traditional old translation, and you can get this modern translation made from the modern, as they want to say, Greek text, but I'll just say it's an eclectic or minority text, compared against the majority text, and you'll get to see the differences, and it'll draw out more meaning from that King James, because you're now seeing it in a much, and I mean much, simpler rendition. And, and, and I'll, I'll give you an example. I will go back to John chapter 1, and I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation because, well, I want to. This is our show. We can do what we want. But here's how it works. In the beginning, the Word already existed. He was with God, and He was God. He was in the beginning with God. He created everything there is. Nothing exists that He didn't make. Life itself was in Him, and this life gives light to everyone. The light shines through the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. I like that translation there, because that is an alternative way of, of using that Greek word that is, that is being translated there. God sent John the Baptist to tell everyone about the light, so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was only a witness to the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, is going to come into the world. I just, that's great. And I, I recall once Chalen using part of Isaiah. I think it was 52 or 53. I can't remember which, but it was it was part of the suffering the suffering servant. Uh, so it's probably chapter 53. And he's preaching from it, and he found this verse that the he found that the best way to translate it so that you could make it really relate to people was to use the NLT. And so he snuck that into his um, sermon by just saying uh, another translation. I like how another translation words it. And he, he went, he read it, and he went on through. He never commented on where it came from. I knew where it came from, having having read having read from the NLT many times. NLT was one of those books, was one of those versions that really got me into like, oh, wow, there's so many ways of expressing things 
when you're going from an old language or from a language that's very foreign and you want to bring it into our language and you want to bring it into our language in a way that, that is simple and easy to read and understand, I don't think you can go wrong with the NLT. Are they 100% right on every choice? Probably not. Neither was the NIV. And probably the NASB, as much as I love it, isn't either. And the ESV can sometimes be hard to, hard to read. It is, as Yoda would say, because that's the one that I was saying that gets called Yoda speak sometimes. But I think the same thing can be leveled against the King James, the new King James to some degree, and certainly to the NASB as well as the NIV. I mean, as well as the ESV. So what have you got from this? Hopefully you've gotten a little lesson on not being so picky. In fact, give yourself a wide variety of of translations. I think everyone should have at least three. I really do. And if you're going to have three, here's my choices. If you're going to have only three Bibles, and you're never going to own any other Bibles, if you're going to use these three as your comparison, here's my three. Get a King James Version of the Bible. Absolutely get a King James Version. It's historical significance alone. And the poetry in, in, in the Old Testament, the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, a.k.a. Song of Songs, um, the Lamentations of Jeremiah, the, the books of Esther and the books of, of Job and the books of, of the Judges and the books of Genesis and the book of Ruth, the book of Daniel. It reads in a way in and Isaiah as well, despite some wonky translations at certain points. It reads in the King James like it doesn't read anywhere else. Now, if you're going to have another more word-for-word, but using a more modern understanding of the text, New American Standard Bible, 1995 edition, New American Standard Bible, 1977 edition, if you're wanting to stick with the old these and thous, you can get the, uh, the, uh, the archaic pronoun version as well in the 77. I would skip the 2020 update because I would say if you're going to go with, with a more modern edition, something a little more paraphrastic, get the New Living Translation, the NLT, or get the New English Translation, the NET Bible. <laughs> but it is a thought-for-thought translation in most places. It's, le- it's more dynamic and less formal equivalent. So, once again, if you're only going to own three Bibles, get the King James, get the New American Standard 95 or 77, and get a New Living Translation. If you're going to be like me and have five or more, I'm going to give you these. Get a King James, get a new King James, or even a modern English version, so that you can have an alternative in the, t- in the traditional text, in the TR. Okay, the Texas Receptus. Something besides just a King James. Hey, even get you a, a, a facsimile edition of the King James 1611 with Apocrypha, or a Tyndall Bible, New Testament, or... And, and I actually want one of these uh, because it's the Bible the pilgrims brought over here with them. It's the Bible of the, of the Reformation itself, Puritanism, Calvinism. I'd like to own one for historical purpose. It's also the first real study Bible, and I know I've mentioned it in the past. So maybe you can get you a Geneva Bible. That's the Bible that the Protestants that came here used, okay? That's the Bible that King James was railing against when he gave certain instructions to the translators on the King James Version. See what he didn't want them to see. It's kind of the first real study Bible and commentary built in to a Bible uh, through its notes system. But uh, it's a very Calvinistic Bible. So for historical purposes, it's very interesting. Uh, you can get the 1560 edition in hardcover. You can get it from christianbook.com. So you can get it cheap that way. Now, you can get an, you can get more expensive editions. You can get an expensive facsimile edition through what's called the KJV store. Mm. <clears throat> 
for $179, or you can get $44.99, $45 plus shipping and tax for from christianbook.com. No brainer. Get the christianbook.com one, right? Then have something, you know, like I say, have have more than one thing in the in the traditional text editions. If you're a German reader, get the German, get the Martin Luther Bible. But anyway, you're probably not a German reader, neither, neither am I. But get you something in the in the traditional text besides the King James if you're going to have more than just three Bibles. But I say everybody should have at least three. So get you a modern formal equivalent. See, again, the NASB, but try an ESV. Try an English Standard Version. Uh, you're going to find that language is going to really suit you if you're used to the King James or the New King James style of, of Bible. Uh, English Standard Version comes in multiple editions, very cheap. They're made to move. And one day when we talk about study Bibles, I'm going to talk about this because the ESV's got so many different things out there in those editions. And then get you a, and you do need a good study Bible, by the way. Get you, besides those three I originally mentioned now, we're just talking about another form of equivalent such as the ESV. Do get an NET, get an NIV, or a Holman. Or CSB, Christian Center Bible, which replaced the Holman. Again, very widely dis- distributed. You can find it in multiple editions. Uh, get you an NET. If you're going to get an NET, get the full notes edition. Don't waste your time with the thin line version. Yeah, you can get one, but and really cheap, by the way. You can get one really cheap in a fake leather. But don't do it. Get the hardcover full notes edition. Or even get you a real leather full notes edition if you really want to go all out. But if you've never read it and you're not sure you're going to like it that much, and you're just going to use it for research purposes, it's not going to be your daily reading Bible, because it's never been mine. I use it for research purposes mostly. But get the NET. Have the NLT. And if you want to paraphrase, get you um, the Living Bible. I don't recommend the message by Eugene Patterson, but I mean, I understand his other works, his actual theological works and other books are good, from what I've been told. They're relatively good, and he's a conservative, but it's something about that message Bible. I just don't, it, doesn't, it doesn't ring true for me. I don't like it. But for a paraphrase, get the Living Bible. And then just just have like I say, just have you a variety of those Bibles in that in that in that in that edition. Those things that I just said within that tradition, not edition. I'm sorry, I misspoke. But within those traditions, get you a few of those different Bibles: the NLT, the NRSV, the ESV. They all they all would be worthwhile to own. Okay. Well, I think I've spoke enough, and I know Chalen's going to chew me out for leaving out one other translation. It began being released in bits and pieces in 2020. It's yet to be completed. So the Old Testament hasn't been added on with the New Testament. The New Testament editions do exist. You can buy them, and you can get downloads of various books as they're being uh, presented. But this is sort of taking the New American Standard 77 and the New American Standard 95 and going within that tradition, taking those two, taking the best from both, both versions, synthesizing them into their own new update to be released sort of concurrent with the idea of the 2020 NASB, an alternative to that, sort of as the ESV was an alter- was a conservative alternative to the NRSV, where you have John MacArthur and Master Seminary and 316, is it 316 Publishing? I think that's right. Um, taking a hand at, at, at cracking the New American Standard and, and updating it in their own way, and they're calling it the LSB, the Legacy Standard Bible. I will own one once it's completed. I did not go ahead and spend all that money on the New Testament. I didn't feel it necessary. I'm going to wait till the full edition's out, and then I'll get me the cheapest one they've got. I won't buy the big goatskin leather or anything like that. I'll just get me a leatherette, a fake leather. But, you know, it'll be good, and I'm looking forward to owning one. I have read parts of it because I've received 
through email subscription, I have received uh, PDFs of certain books, and I've read through Mark and, and found it fascinating, the choices they made. So there you go. Um, you're all up to date as far as you're all up, you're all up to date as far as I can tell on Bible translations. I missed you, Chalen, and look forward to seeing you soon. I think we're going to record again in another week or two, and we'll put out we'll probably record a couple or three episodes, as many as we can fit in. We'll definitely do that that current events uh, potpourri episode, and probably get in another subject or two. And so we'll have some stuff in the bank that's not timely, but we want to put out that episode, and it's already some of the things that I'm going to talk about are already a few weeks old. These are things we have just not had time to talk about. We haven't been timely on anything in a while, so this will be one of those catch-up, and uh, I think it'll be good. Things go better when when Chalen's here. I feel like I don't ramble as much. I have been I have gone long, folks. So um, looking at like an hour and 20 minutes probably by the time I'm done editing this, and it's actually, believe me, taking me longer than that to record. So I guess that's all I can say. Thank you for listening. We love you. God bless. That's a wrap.